Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another episode of History Hack. As ever, we apologise for our total lack of medieval history, but we're making up for it today, aren't we, Alina? We are making up for it today with Gabrielle Story, with our, who's joining us, who's a PhD student and a historian specialising in, let me say this correctly, Angevine Queenship. She also looks at gender, sexuality and family in the 12th century. And also, fingers crossed, with the handing in of your thesis next month. Yay, welcome, Gabrielle. Hi, thank you for having me. Great to be here. Oh, this is brilliant because, yeah, we, we, I look down, you know, when I do the categories list for the website, I'm always embarrassed by the lack of medieval history because, it's, you know, it's only a thousand years of history that we seem to not pay enough attention to. But this is awesome because <laughs> not only are you here to talk about medieval history, but medieval boss-like women. So we're going to talk about Eleanor of Aquitaine and Queen Matilda, aren't we? And maybe compare and contrast them a bit. So two quite epic women um Eleanor of Aquitaine actually finished like just outside the top 10 I think in our greatest Britain thing so um should we start with her so who is she where does she come from yep so Eleanor so she is daughter of William the 10th Duke of Aquitaine and Eleanor of Chateau so she's born around 1124 we think she's the oldest child she's got a sister called Alex and a brother called William and grows up in Poitiers in Aquitaine which is kind of like this amazing place to grow up it's a centre of culture and learning um, it's later associated with the courts of love which developed in the 12th century so it's probably one of the better places in France to grow up like think of everything all kind of schmoozing cultural and wonderful it's kind of where you'd want to be really like a little medieval Oxford. Yeah, yeah, like that, yeah. So, um, yeah, so she kind of grows up expecting to inherit Aquitaine. Um, her dad dies on Good Friday, 11.37, whilst he's on the pilgrimage. Um, so Eleanor's only 13 at this point. And she's left in the care of Louis VI, King of France. Uh, she's quite the catch. She's meant to be very beautiful, she's highly educated, she's young, and she's now one of the wealthiest heiresses in Europe. Wow. Yeah. Um, but she does end up marrying Louis VII of France, doesn't she? Yes, so perhaps unsurprisingly, Louis VI turns around and decides, right, want to keep you, marries her off to his son, Louis VII, who's heir to the throne of France. And it's not the most successful of marriages so we say so 
Eleanor and Louis get married at Bordeaux Cathedral in July 1137, and this marriage ceremony now places Aquitaine firmly under the control of the French, which they don't like particularly much. Um, they become King and Queen of France in 1137, and it is rarely held up as probably one of the least successful royal marriages. It's clear throughout their marriage that they never really get along. There's uh, The legend of Eleanor is that she's quite a tempestuous or strong-willed woman shall we say well like already yeah and louis is held up to be quite monkish and he goes to church more regularly than you'd expect of a royal king shall we say um so with this you've got this clash of personalities louis trying to exert control over aquitaine and it's never really going to end that well for them and uh, because of this they do end up getting their marriage in old in March 1152. This is mad because surely at this point women just get crapped on and it's just like lump it doesn't matter if you don't like your husband but they actually just call it quits don't they? Yeah so it's not highly common for them to separate but Mm. Uh, this annulment's brought about by several factors, partially because after 15 years of marriage, they only have two daughters, and as kind of familiar within this period, daughters don't really fit the bill when it comes to inheritance mm. in certain areas. So Louis really needs to have a son to inherit the French throne. And like I said, there's a bit of a tempestuous marriage going on, different personalities. Um, so they decide to have an annulment because of this louis ends up losing aquitaine which is a major loss but he needs a son and Mm. at that moment eleanor's just not giving him one so so that's eleanor matilda where is she from and who is she so this is empress matilda so quite confusingly for this period we've got about three Queen Matildas and Empress Matilda knocking about. So this one is definitely Empress Matilda. Uh, she is daughter of Henry I, King of England and Matilda of Scotland. So she's born in 1102. Also had a brother called William, so another popular name at the time. This might be why medieval history doesn't get looked into as much when it comes to... <laughs> <laughs> everybody's William and Matilda. Yeah, yeah, you've got all the Eleanors, all the Matildas, and all the Williams. So I'm already uh, confused. <laughs> <laughs> so I'll try and denominate. Uh, sorry, I'll try to separate them mm. with different uh, descriptions. But yes, yeah, so this Empress Matilda, she is married off to Henry V, Holy Roman Emperor, in 1114, goes over to Germany. Uh, grows up at the various courts, rules there for a few years. They don't have any children. Um, Henry V dies in 1125, at which point Matilda returns to England because at this point she is likely to be heir to the throne of England because her brother, another William, dies in 1120. Mm -hmm. So their father Henry I kind of has to make a decision as to what he's going to do with Matilda who wants her to be married off to how he's going to have her as um, 
heiress to the English throne. Then she gets married again, doesn't she? Yeah. So Matilda gets married to Geoffrey of Anjou in 1128. And this marriage isn't unexpected in a way because Matilda's brother William had been married to Geoffrey's sister Matilda. I told you there were too many Matildas going on. Matilda marries. Oh my, this is so confusing. (laughs) So Matilda and Geoffrey are kind of keeping this uh, Anglo Norman Angevin alliance going. And it's in Matilda's interest to kind of have a husband, to have someone to help enforce her uh, position as heiress to the throne of England. But it's not all plain sailing bit like Eleanor and Louis there's some marital tensions at the beginning Matilda's nine years older than Geoffrey she's now gone from being empress to a countess so that's quite a drop in status which uh yeah causes yeah just a little bit bit. yeah (laughs) but there are sons there at least aren't there yes so they are three sons together they have Henry Geoffrey and William I'm sorry, there's just more Henry, Jeffrey, <laughs> Williams. <laughs> confused the situation a little bit, but yeah, so. How's her relationship with her sons? Yeah, so pretty solid, to be honest. She is very much in support of her son, Henry. So I'm going to briefly go off on a tangent and talk about the Civil War, also known as the Anarchy, to kind of ground the, her relationships with them in play. Do it. We love tangents. <laughs> so, I okay. did one about cannibalism the other day, so it's fine. This is nothing. No. <laughs> <laughs> so, like I said, Matilda was meant to inherit the throne of England, and her father, Henry I, dies in 1135. So, you'd kind of expect Matilda to kind of come running over to England to inherit the throne. For whatever reason, she doesn't immediately rush to England. It's suspected it's because she's pregnant at this time and she's had quite a difficult birth with her last son. So it may have been because of that and other reasons. She didn't immediately move to England. So what happens is her cousin, Stephen Floor, decides to run along, uh, comes over to England. Nobles accept him as king without much kind of uh, discontent or any issues. Stephen becomes king and Matilda and Geoffrey are now in Anjou, moving over to Normandy, having to think, right, what are we going to do next in order to try and get the throne back? And this preceding kind of 15 years of conflict has been coined as the anarchy, not really an accurate term because there's not constant fighting for 15 years. There's just Mm. lots of skirmishes, campaigns and so forth. But yeah, quite a time of uh, political upheaval if you're in England or Normandy, I suppose, at this point. So, I was going to say, when is there no political upheaval in England? It's constant, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, that's also very true. So, yeah, bit of a time of skirmish and go on. But over the years, as, especially as we get into the 1140s, Matilda kind of reaches a moment of realisation where she's not going to be able to inherit the throne and she passes this uh baton so to speak to her eldest son henry and he then starts campaigning for 
himself to be accepted as the next ruler of England. And the, he is eventually successful. So in 1153, Stephen and Henry, Matilda and Geoffrey's son, agree that Henry will inherit England and Normandy, well, England at this point, uh, upon Stephen's death and disinherit Stephen's son, Eustace. How did Eustace feel about that? Oh, not very happy. But, um, yeah, he he also dies quite young, so there's not much of a conflict there in the end. It's much the case of when Stephen dies, Henry is accepted. He comes over to England and is crowned at Winchester Cathedral in December 1154. Who names so. their son Eustace? Really? It's not... Well, they just want it to be a bit different from the Williams going round, I suppose. At least it's not William or Matilda. <laughs> <laughs> so we last left Eleanor with an annulled marriage um, yes. and daughters. What happened to her after that? So, yeah, the annulment, 11.52, and at this point she quite merrily goes back to Aquitaine, faces a kidnapping attempt along the way, possibly two, because uh, as I said she's quite uh, the catch in terms of this amount of resources and wealth that Aquitaine has so yeah she's a wanted woman really in terms of being a potential marital prospect so yeah she returns to Aquitaine kind of removes any trace of Louis from all her charters and re-establishes herself as Duchess and then quite quickly afterwards, I think it's about eight weeks, she then marries Henry II, the son of Matilda and Geoffrey. Eight weeks. Yeah. So she, <laughs> I like it. <laughs> I like it. That's a real yeah. middle finger to Louis, isn't it? Yeah. So that's how they've come together then. So Matilda is now the mother-in-law of Eleanor. Yes. And it's a really interesting relationship kind of, dig into this kind of comparison in both in terms of how they rule how they operate with their families and obviously Henry's the second here we are is the linchpin tying them together but they're both really strong women they're both really uh interesting female rulers in terms of their spheres of influence so Matilda tends to work in Normandy quite a lot Eleanor's more commonly associated with Aquitaine, but they are both darting around the regions a bit, mm. trying to hold all these domains together whilst Henry's off also jumping around left, right and centre, ruling England, ruling on Jew, and they've got Aquitaine, they've got Normandy, they've got a couple of other counties, Maine and Terrain. So they've got this quite sprawl of lands to kind of yeah, keep control over. She has sons then, doesn't she, with Henry? Yes. So once Eleanor and Henry are married, she ends up kind of busting out the children in quite a regular fashion. So she has four sons and three daughters with Henry, which, wow. again, is probably what he's called another middle finger to Louis. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Clearly not her fault. Yeah. So, um, yeah, poor little Louis stuck back in France and uh yeah Eleanor very much having a much more successful marriage with Henry not only 
in terms of the amount of land they rule, the amount of children they have together. But in the 1150s in particular, they really work together and it's quite a successful partnership. But as the years kind of roll on a little bit and we get into the 1160s, it becomes clear that Henry's kind of pushing Eleanor to one side a bit. She's not as active. She's focused on childbearing and then Henry's attitude kind of changes and he looks much more towards him ruling or him and his administrators ruling the regions rather than Eleanor. I mean, they're both these women there, they're just incredibly and they're just remarkable. And to make anything to make it even more remarkable, Eleanor actually leads the second crusades though, doesn't she? Yeah, so this is a point which is really interesting and she yeah so second crusade starts off 1148 so we're jumping back in time a bit she leads the Aquitanian contingent alongside her husband louis the seventh so going back louis leading the french contingent eleanor's leading the Aquitanian one there's a room historical myth rumor that comes down to us that apparently eleanor and her women are dressed up as these kind of Amazonian-esque leaders um, with all this kind of spectacular array of clothing and jewels, all sorts going along. So it's quite the image when you think about it. Not sure how true this image is of them being dressed like Amazonians, but... Oh, I yeah. hope it's true. <laughs> yeah, I'll take that image 100%. Yeah. What about Matilda? Yeah. How does she compare as a military leader? So it's quite different. When Eleanor's on crusades, it's the Second Crusade isn't viewed as particularly successful, especially for the French because they have a huge loss of life and part of this is blamed at Eleanor and the decisions her and her Aquitanian leaders make about where they're moving their contingents to. And in comparison, that's just one moment. The Second Crusade isn't a particularly long campaign. It's not particularly successful and once Eleanor and Louis reach the Holy Land there's further kind of disputes between them around leadership and Eleanor's position in the royal court and it's at this point she kind of asks for her annulment whereas in comparison to Matilda she has a protracted campaign of like I say nearly 15 years of working in Normandy with Geoffrey working in England and her links with the nobles in England trying to get back the throne trying to establish power bases and she's a lot more kind of on the ground as we would say kind of getting involved um working traveling across the land trying to yeah trying to get her crown back basically and yeah it's quite a yeah quite a different kind of military leadership and with Matilda as well we kind of don't necessarily have her on at the front of battle so to speak but we do have instances where she has to flee sieges so for example the route of Winchester in 1141 she ends up having to flee because of oncoming forces and in, she then holed up in Oxford in 1142 and Stephen's forces surround the castle and she ends up sneaking out the back gate we suspect with her forces under the cover of snow. That's smart, sneaking out the back gate. Why do these guys never check the back gate? 
<laughs> you would have thought common sense after a while. You're going to kind of cover all your areas, but no. So let's bring Henry II into the mix. Um, this is also where you can start laughing at me mixing up all the Henrys and Richards and everything else because I did that on email yesterday. Uh, yes, Alex, I did. God, brilliant. She's, uh, uh, we just continually raise the fact that she thinks Edward VI was George V's son. But let's just move on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so Alina had put in Richard III, also a medieval king, but not the Richard we want right now. Um, <laughs> Richard, <laughs> Richard I is the one we're after. But uh, yeah, we'll take a step back and look at Henry II. Um, okay, we can, we can laugh it out. It's fine. I'm fine <laughs> with this. I've dealt with it for, for long enough. Right, anyway, so Henry II, he's in the mix. How were both... Um, Eleanor and Matilda's relationships with him. Yeah, so he has pretty solid relationship with his mum. Um, they work together. It's very cooperative. Once Henry successfully established himself as King of England, Matilda continues to work for his interest in Normandy. So she acts as a kind of informal regent. She continues, um, like, giving money to abbeys and monasteries and other religious institutions to kind of build their relationships with the church, make sure that the, he's still getting along with the nobles to a certain point. So, yeah, very much a kind of strong mother-son relationship. In terms of his relationship with Eleanor, kind of similar at the beginning. Uh, they get along very well. It's very much a cooperative partnership, but this very much starts to disintegrate, as I've kind of hinted at, from the 1160s, partially due to Eleanor's childbearing, but also just because there's that kind of, again, a bit of a personality clash. And it's really difficult when you think about Eleanor. She's got such a fantastic reputation as what we would call a strong woman. But it mm. just ends up with she's married these two men who just don't want that enough. They're really not. <laughs> <laughs> so how does, right, and I'm going back to year seven here where they taught us about this. How does Thomas Beckett getting stabbed up come into this story? Yeah, so I'll try and give a brief bit of background for it for people who are like, who's Beckett? What's going on? What's yeah, because we about them? like half our audience <laughs> is outside the UK. So he's an Archbishop of Canterbury. Yeah, yeah. So Beckett and Henry get along really well. 1155, he's appointed as Lord Chancellor. Then, as you say, Alex, 1162, he becomes Archbishop of Canterbury. And he's Henry kind of like a Wolsey Thomas Cromwell figure, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he's getting that kind of vibe that he is the next right-hand man, so to mm. speak. And Henry really hopes that they're going to work together, kind of keep the rights of the government over the church going, and that eventually Henry will have more kind of control and power over the church. However, Becky kind of turns around, nah, not doing that. I want to make sure that the church is rights and protected. And we have what's called the Constitution of Clarendon in 1164, which weakens the church. And all of the clergy, kind of including Becket at this point, agree to these kind of new rules. But he refuses to sign the documents, sign the constitutions. So Henry calls into court for a trial. Becket's convicted of acting against royal authority and then flees to France. So this is really a sudden break in their relationship and yeah there's negotiations going on between Henry and Beckett in terms of 
hopes for a reconciliation and Matilda and Ellen this is kind of the moment they get involved because Beckett's sending letters to them both asking for their intercession asking if they can kind of use their influence with Henry to so they can you know all kind of make up and become one big happy family again and yeah you'd kind of hope that they would be able to bring them all back together but it's kind of evidence that Matilda maybe doesn't have as much influence over Henry anymore and particularly uh, Matilda dies in 1167 so that's definitely going to be the end of her um, you know her position her attempts to work with Henry so Becky kind of moves towards Eleanor is she able to do anything and nope nothing whatsoever and in June 1170 we have another kind of turning point where the Archbishop of York, the Bishop of London, and the Bishop of Salisbury crown Henry the Young King. So this is Matil, uh, sorry, this is Eleanor and Henry's first son as heir apparent to the throne of England. Now this was meant to be the right of Thomas's as Archbishop of Canterbury. So in as kind of like a retribution statement for this, Becket exiles these three bishops, and this apparently turning point throws Henry into a colossal rage. This is where we get the stories of him, you know, like chewing a rug or a bedspread, like having an absolute tantrum, throwing himself yeah. on the floor. <laughs> Goes like, full man toddler. Yeah. <laughs> that is all I'm thinking. He's throwing his toys right out of the pram. That is all that's going through my mind right now. I know. Do you know what? And yeah. I just think in Trump. <laughs> yeah. But anyway, much. let's let's stay away from modern day let's politics and go back yeah. to Henry chewing on a rug. Yeah, so this is that popular legend that's come down to us. We don't have a very accurate report as to what was said, but apparently according to the chroniclers and then like we say, kind of this popular legend that comes down, his words are interpreted as a decree for the nobles to go and murder Beckett. So four of these knights kind of run off to Canterbury and say that they're going to bring Beckett to Winchester. Beckett's a bit uncertain. It's like, do I really trust these guys? Quite rightly, shouldn't trust them because they do later murder him in the cathedral. So I kind of feel sorry for him a little bit. Yeah, I mean... I'll feel sorry for everybody, by the way, just so you know. And then Alex gets on me. She's like, oh, dude, some of her, sometimes her sympathy, you're just like, really, Alina? Really? Anyway. Yeah, I mean. Well, uh, yeah, I mean, Beckett, I, he was he was a martyr, wasn't he? They Didn't they, he's St. Thomas Beckett after Yeah, that. so they yeah. canonised him three years later. So mm. Oh, that's quick. Yeah, not a popular move by Henry by any stroke of it, but... I would say we don't even know if Henry did actually ask for him to be murdered or if these kind of nobles thought they would curry some favour with Henry by running off to Canterbury and killing Thomas. So, yeah, but it very much kind of throws the whole relationship between Henry, his nobles and the government and the church into a bit of disarray, really. And, uh, yeah. So that's another kind of moment of this kind of kingly royal temper not really working out. And yeah, very much, I suppose, something you can see nowadays in terms of leaders 
potentially having hissy fits but like I say we won't go into that too much (laughs) (laughs) let's get back to the women who are entirely more the uh, sane people in this story there's no rug chewing going on for a start Uh, right so if you look as a historian at Matilda and Eleanor what similarities as rulers do you see how do you compare them and are there any major differences in the way they operate so I think they are really similar in terms of they both work for their families they're both really dedicated mothers looking to kind of further their son's interests and uh, they work cooperatively though with their husbands so I think it's much um, more accurate to say that Matilda and Jeffrey's kind of partnership and their kind of positions co-rule is a lot more effective than the kind of partnership we see Eleanor and Henry having, which is a bit more kind of tempestuous. But despite this, you know, they both act as regents for Henry. They actually even work cooperatively with each other as mother and daughter-in-law. Not got specific evidence of this, but we can see that they're really keen to kind of work for the family and, yeah, rule successfully. They've both got quite... Uh, capable political acumen, so to speak. We can see that they are effective rulers in their spheres of influence and work really well together. So I wouldn't say there's um, much of a difference between them in terms of perhaps their attitudes towards rule, but very much they, Eleanor has a much wider sphere of influence more places she can kind of exert her authority so to speak like Eleanor's got England Aquitaine Maine on due all these kind of territories she can rule over and exert her authority on a wider scale whereas Matilda's power very much wanes and is confined to Normandy hey I'm Ryan Reynolds at Mint Mobile we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does they charge you a lot we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... Hello Fresh is your guilt free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. So, both of these women actually end up as widows at one point or another can you talk to us what their life was like being a widow yeah so thinking about this i'm gonna throw it back for a moment what would you think what pops into your head when you think of widowhood either in the medieval period or kind of anything i don't think you want to know (laughs) sitting in a room doing embroidery and being very bored yeah yeah that is our yeah that is very much our image isn't it that you know they're quiet they're probably yeah yeah you're done now shuffle on yeah 
And that is completely the opposite to how Matilda and Eleanor end up. Oh, so, God, you said that. Yes. <laughs> Get in. Yeah. So their dowager periods, their widowhood, is really a period of kind of high activity. They don't disappear from the political scene at all. They don't retire to an abbey immediately or kind of contemplate religious life. They're very much active. They're acting as regents for their sons. They are still showing that they're really capable female rulers, travelling all over the place, getting involved with the nobility, issuing writs to kind of uh, maintain law and order over England and Normandy, uh, being involved with religious institutions in terms of granting money or lands or funds. They're very much, even more so than perhaps that, as we'd consider the peak of their power, really, yeah, involved in the political scene and political activities. And, yeah, like I say, Matilda's really based in Normandy and particularly with the Abbey of Beck, which is a favourite of hers. But, yeah, we see a bit more of Eleanor's activity because she has such a long life. I mean, she's nearly 80 when she dies. So Eleanor's got a lot more opportunity to kind of, yeah, rule and be active. You mentioned that, and that obviously means she crosses over with more subsequent kings. So how does she fare, firstly, with Richard the Lionheart, and secondly, with King John, who we just love mocking on this podcast? We should probably do something about that at some point and genuinely appraise him. But at the moment, all we do is, is tie him to the lion in the Disney film. But how does she fare with both of them? Yeah, I'm, I mean, to be fair, it's... Almost a popular thing, isn't it, to kind of like mock John a bit. And it's so easy to kind of, yeah, look at him as a figure and being like, you really didn't do that well, mate, did you? But yeah, yeah I'm, you... Gonna, I'm not going to lie. It's going to take a lot to turn me away from that because of the Disney cartoon. See, for you, for Disney cartoon, for me, it's just one step worse. So one of my favourite films of all time, which I funny enough, I rewatched yesterday, is uh, Robin Hood Men in Tights. <laughs> and all I can see in my mind when you talk about John is the mole and as the mole moves around his face alright <laughs> um, yeah. sorry <laughs> it's alright uh, yeah so John has got that kind of reputation around him um, I've done a little bit of work which I won't dig into now but he's not as bad as we kind of think and where I'm going to dig into this is what Eleanor ends up getting up to. So, yeah, 1189, Henry II dies. Richard kind of accedes to the throne. And the first thing he does is free Eleanor from captivity because I don't think we've uh, dug into it that much. But in 1173, so we're going back 16 years, there's a rebellion between Henry the Young King and so Eleanor and Henry's first son Richard and Geoffrey against Henry because of um, his kind of overbearing control. His... <laughs> the chewing of the rugs and the general tantrum. <laughs> yeah, um, the way he decides to divide the land between the sons doesn't make them particularly happy. So yeah, 1173 there's a rebellion of the eldest three sons and Eleanor allegedly against Henry and the result of this rebellion is Eleanor is held in captivity for 
the rest of Henry's reign, effectively. It's not an impoverished life, but um, yeah, she's kept under close supervision for the rest of her time as Queen Consort of England. Um, so the first action Richard does when he takes the throne in 1189 is to free Eleanor from captivity. And the first thing she does is go, I'm going to let the majority of the prisoners out because to live a confined life is um, so harsh, so bad for the soul and all this kind of other stuff. So she decides to, yeah, empty the jails out a bit. Um, but... <laughs> I love it. Just that's, uh, She's really good at giving blokes the finger, isn't she? <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah. So in Richard's reign, he kind of comes to England. He's crowned and... Uh, he then decides, right, I'm going to take up Henry II's vow to go on crusade. Let's go on crusade. And as we all know, the Third Crusade is kind of more successful. And Richard, uh, yeah, just decides to go off with uh, Philip Augustus, King of France. And they go off on the Third Crusade. And this leaves Eleanor <coughs> with, yeah, uh, in a position where she now needs to kind of maintain control over England and Normandy and, uh, yeah, Aquitaine, all the kind of remaining Angevin territories. So Richard's left behind a, re a council of nobles kind of rule in his stead. But given that he's not been on the throne for very long, it's very much kind of Eleanor's uh, opportunity to take up a point of leadership and really, you know, keep things going steadily so to speak whilst Richard's off on crusade um, um, but yeah he's not around that much is he so then let's get to John and yeah. the thumb sucking and the mole <laughs> <laughs> yeah I mean it's yeah that's pretty accurate Richard's away on crusade comes back for six months and then he's away fighting in Normandy and that sums up his reign in effect very briefly and yeah so John takes the throne in 1199 and he's facing you know lots of difficulties uh he's got an empty treasury because richard spent the money on the crusades or on other military exploits he's facing um the growing threat threat from the french kings who are you know rapidly uh conquering Angevin territories and by 1204 the French king, Philip Augustus, has kind of taken over Normandy and uh, the power of the English kings is really weakened in France. Now, in these five years from 1199 to 1204, whilst this kind of growing French incursion is going on, Eleanor, bless her heart, had chosen to try and retire to Fontevraud Abbey, which was a particular I've favourite I've been there. It is lovely. <laughs> Um, yeah, so she had hoped to re actually, yeah, retire and have this quiet life, but no, you've got this um, warfare from the French king going on, you've got um, their, so John's nephew, Arthur of Brittany, is also being contended a potential uh, candidate for the English throne, so he's got uh, campaigns going on whereby he tries to uh, yeah establish his position and as part of this Arthur 
this nephew, uh, decides to attack Mirabeau, which is the castle where Eleanor is staying at this particular point. So, bless her, poor Eleanor has to kind of uh, rally the troops once again, so to speak, uh, pull herself up in position and, yeah, flee from Arthur's kind of... Uh, attack so to speak then John has to come to the rescue and you know at the age of 80 you really don't want to be gallivanting around on a horse do you? No, <laughs> probably in my not. 80s I want to be chilling in a nice chair. With That's when we're going to be sat on our porch abusing oh, people. Yeah. Oh yeah with the super soakers. <laughs> yeah yeah that's she does she does end up buried there though doesn't she at that abbey that she likes. Yes yeah so Despite her best intents, um, yeah, and like I say, despite the activities of Arthur and John, Eleanor pretty much stays in Aquitaine and tries to, uh, yeah, maintain some peace, maintain some stability and control over the region and pass it over to John. But yeah, she dies. Hopefully, I feel a bit more settled, yeah, in Fontro Abbey, and that's, yeah, where she's buried alongside Henry II and Richard and her later daughter-in-law, Isabella Rongolet, who's wife of John. So. Well, most of Richard, because his heart is at ruin and yeah. randomly, what is it, his left arm or something is somewhere else? He's in three bits, right? Yeah, yeah, quite spread out. But uh, yeah, yeah, so the effigy you've got there, so the bulk of him is there. They're amazing. Oh, They're like quite. painted wood or oh, painted yeah. stone, aren't they? They're really cool. Um, I'm I'm collecting bits of him. I've been to see the heart. And I've been to see him <laughs> at Fontevraud. I just have to go further south to get the last bit of him. <laughs> Doesn't sound weird at all, does it? No, I'm I know. Collecting the little bits of this medieval king. Yeah, pretty much. I just yeah. I just find it amusing that he was buried all over the place. Yeah, I. He's, it's interesting for him as well like you say that he chooses to be buried in different places but also given that he wasn't actually in the region for particularly long as well yeah I'm like yeah here's the bit of me even though i wasn't here to rule you for that long because i was too busy off having a fight elsewhere pretty much yeah Oh, well, thank you so much for this. It's been brilliant that we have actually, I feel like, Alina, does it make sense to you now? It does, actually. So it took, 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 you know, you know, me and my brain and it comes to kings and queens. I'm not very good at it. Yeah, but 45 minutes and now you kind of know the difference. And I've been engaged and I've been listed. It's awesome. I'm, and we know you. why Eleanor was so high up on the Greatest Britons list. Now we know why. There we yeah. go. Yeah, she, she was, was just... Boss. She was. She was such a kind of kick-ass woman. I really do love her. And I'm not surprised she came up so highly on the list because her and, yeah, she was pretty much a kind of sisters of doing it for themselves kind of lady. And Matilda as well. She's really such a great woman to kind of compare her to because she's equally this kind of, yeah, really strong, powerful woman just trying to push through... Um, against this kind of really male-dominated political scene. And I think they are both kind of really effective women and they do so much, so many different kind of, uh, yeah, they've got their fingers in lots of pies, they're travelling all over the place there. And they don't just want to sit down and shut up. No, very like much it. not. 
yeah. So, I mean, I think these are like two women of the middle ages where it's really great to kind of dig into them a bit more and, yeah, try and overturn a little bit of the kind of mythology that's around them in terms of, oh, well, you know, can't have these powerful women running around and doing all this kind of stuff. And they've been, I suppose, uh, had their kind of public images discredited to a point because they were pretty powerful, spunky women, you know? Yeah. And we love them both. Yeah. We're going to take a leaf out of their book. Yeah. As if we don't already. Oh, yeah, that's true. A yeah. bigger leaf now. A bigger leaf, yeah. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really pleased she finished so high up. I was, we were looking at it, and I was like, I just, I don't get it. Why is she so high up the list? Now I know. Yeah, she did everything she could. Yeah, in particular to try and sort out Aquitaine. Had a bit of a conflict with her husband, so to speak. But you know, she keeps going. She really does make sure that. Um, England and Normandy and the rest of the Angevin domains are kind of ruled with some sort of efficiency whilst Richard and John are having their uh, well I just I I love that they both appear don't they when all the men on the scene are big man toddlers basically yeah I mean apart from ironically perhaps Beckett who gets stabbed up for his trouble but (laughs) yeah I mean there's so much you can dig into with all of them, but yeah, I've. It's difficult in with just the podcast to kind of like dig into so much of the nitty gritty. But I think yeah, Matilda and I deserve a lot more credit for. Yeah, I get the feeling that they're the ones doing the adulting. Yeah. yeah. To to an extent. Yeah, I mean, I used to say there's all sorts of different bits going on in the background with Henry and Richard and John and why they're not able to rule as effectively but yeah like you say they're just trying to get the children out rule the lands and keep things as steady as they can for them and I think even just doing that really isn't given as much kind of a notice as you kind of realize so yeah brilliant very very interesting woman yeah you have most certainly rounded them both out for us today so thank you very much no it's great to be here always happy to just like shout the praises of matilda and eleanor as much as i can (laughs) i feel like we need t-shirts made yes please yeah join us tomorrow when nikolai eberholz will be with us you probably know him better as pike gray on Twitter. He has a brilliant feed that is dedicated to all things Austria-Hungary in the First World War. And what he's done is a series of programmes with us that just comprehensively tells you the story of the Austro-Hungarian Empire and World War One from beginning to end. So in part one of this, he talks about the outbreak, the assassination of the Archduke, and we talk about the first battles of 1914 and a catastrophic beginning to 1915 for Austria-Hungary as well. Don't forget, you can become a patron of History Hack for as little as a dollar a month. Just go to www.historyhack.podbean.com. It will help us keep going in the aftermath of the coronavirus, and we would really appreciate it, as we would love to do so. Selling a little or a lot? 
Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work.